Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on our unblushing theme, Stories That Still Haunt. This is the full exorcism, the entire show recorded live, exploring stories that won't die. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. We are back at the Visual Arts Collective in the Searle Mitchell Live Work Create District of Garden City, Idaho. I'm Artistic Director Jody Eichelberger. Now we face our fears with our host Beth Norton and our featured storytellers Marina Wool, Ben Hess, and Alice Nelson intermixed with a community story slam. The power of stories compels you. It's late night stories. <gasps> Welcome to Story Story Late Night! <laughs> yeah! It's October, and tonight we're doing stories that still haunt. <laughs> oh, can we get a big round of applause for our band tonight? Kyle, Andy, Shane, Jake, Candy Shake. My name is Black Sheep One, and this is my Sheep Reaper. <laughs> and we're here to have some haunty fun tonight. The structure of tonight's show will be three featured storytellers. These are storytellers who have practiced their story, they've workshopped it with us, they've brought it to the stage, and they are prepared, and we are ready for them. Three featured storytellers intermixed with a story slam. These are spontaneous stories told five minutes on the theme, stories that still haunt. If you would like to be a story slammer, you can put your name in the basket over there. And for a special slam, if you'd like me to tell your story completely anonymously, totally debaucherous, things that you wouldn't want anyone to know, your grandma, your mother, the police, you can put, <laughs> you can put your name or an alias on a blue ticket and drop that in the hat. What do you think about that? Huh? Huh? Anybody in for it? Shh. Don't let us know. All right. Um, I think, I think that's it. Are we ready to hear some stories tonight? I've been Black Sheep One. We'll see you later. Oh, um, welcome, <laughs> welcome to the stage. Your host tonight, Beth Norton. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, that was weird. <laughs> I've never done that before. Never been the voice of a puppet, so this is my first time tonight, you guys. Uh, thank you for witnessing that. I also almost forgot to introduce myself, so. Um, let's see, how's everybody doing? Are we getting settled? We, need, we have some, some standers back there. We've got some empty seats. Uh, maybe over there, is there some empty seats over there? Some, maybe some seats over there, some holes over there. Fill in, get comfy. Um, yeah, welcome to Story Story Night. Clap if you came to a, a late night show over the summer. Awesome, nice to see you again. And clap if you've been to one of our flagship seasons. Awesome. Who are my story subscribers in the house? 
Yeah, thank you. And is there anybody here who got a postcard at the farmer's market? Yeah, all right. Thank you, just checking out our marketing efforts. Nice to see you again. People were really stoked at the farmer's market for this, you guys, I swear. Clap if you shop at the farmer's market. <laughs> okay, so, okay, cool. We're keeping our money local. I like it. We're all on the same, we're all on the same page here tonight. I am very excited to host for you, and I'm going to start um, by telling a little bit, a little story myself um, tonight. Um, I've been telling some stories over the years. Maybe you've seen some before. Um, and one of the things that I really love about the process um, is that it helps to bring back memory. I've got kind of like a black hole. Uh, my therapist and I call it the black hole of everything I want um, in my brain. <laughs> and things just fall in there. Um, you know, like movies I've seen and things I, I just, sometimes I just don't remember things that I feel like I really should remember. And sometimes that's a source of insecurity for me. Um, but it becomes awkward socially when, you know, I'm in conversation with people and they're like, have you seen that movie? And I'm, I can almost never definitively say yes, um, unless it's like 50 first date, which I, ironically, if you've seen that movie, she wakes up every day with a new memory and I watch that movie over and over and over. Um, but also it's a problem with names. I have a really hard time remembering people's names. I'm sure there's some people that can relate to that in here. And I had an experience recently. Uh, I was at a kind of a, a volunteer culminating event. Um, and there's a lot of people there and um, you know, know a lot of people and um, done some volunteer work with a lot of people there. And one woman comes up to me and we went on a, a week-long trip in the backwoods together. Um, she, in fact, gave me a ride to that, uh, to that, you know, remote area. Um, and I've seen her at every volunteer event since, um, but I still cannot remember her name. <laughs> and she comes up and she's like, hey, Beth, um, I'm a grandma now. And I was like, oh my god, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing with me. This is my friend Haley hoping that she would do the like, oh, hey, my name's blah, blah, but she didn't. She just stonewalled me and didn't say a thing. I think she was testing me and I was feeling bold that night. I wasn't wearing a bra, I had jumped in the river and, <laughs> and there was a fiddle band on. So that's how brave I was that night. Um, um, so she didn't bite and um, I just said, I just gave up. I was like, dude, I just, I'm sorry. I know I should know your name, but I don't, I don't know your name. And uh, she, was, she was genuinely offended and, <laughs> and she should have been. And, and she was like, I gave you half my sandwich. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that sandwich. That was really good. The, the sandwich was like chicken and pesto with one of those crusty rolls, you know? Remember that in detail. Um, and then earlier in the summer, I had another experience, a little bit different. I was at the farmer's market, the theme tonight, and I was um, just getting my groceries, and I see a woman pass by, and um, a, a face, you know, familiar as uh, like almost like a childhood thing flashes by and it's a, it's a woman I, I spent my first year in the dorms with in my college that was in another state, which I will not mention. Um, <laughs> um, but it was her and she looks exactly the same except she has a, a child with her now and 
She's carrying a flat of strawberries. I know she doesn't live here. I know what you're thinking. I don't remember her name, but that's not true. I absolutely remember her name. It is Amy Guadagna. And I knew it right then, because you don't forget a name like Amy Guadagna. And especially not at that age. And um, I was like, Amy Guadagna, it was so good to see you. We caught up, went our separate ways. Um, and a few weeks later, she, text, she sent me a picture over text. Um, and it was with me and a, a man. And um, he's wearing like graduation garb. And I'm wearing a tube top, because I'm 20. And um, it's, my, it's like a guy that I dated in college. And she's like, I, there's this, I found this picture. Didn't you date this guy in college? And I was like, I did date him. I dated him for nearly two years. Um, I, in fact, lost my virginity to this man, and I could not remember his name either. <laughs> but I remembered a few other things, like the night I lost my virginity, which not actually very memorable. Um, I don't know if anybody else had this experience. We went out to Italian, it hurt. He put on a record afterward. It was, that was about it. He was a house DJ, so <laughs> you can imagine the kind of music that came on. I think what, what deeply haunts me, and this is the worst story about him that I could tell, um, was the next memory that came back, which was the night he had been out drinking and um, he was a year older than me, so he was able to go to the bar. And I was, um, we were, you know, sleeping and he gets up in the middle of the night and he walks toward the door and then stands like between the door and the wall. And I see him like kind of putting his hands down like this. And I was like, that's not the bathroom. And then I kind of close my eyes like Ugh, and turn over. And then um, what seems like a long time later I hear, and I can fly up out of bed and he's pissing in my purse. Yeah, completely ruined that purse. And that's the man who broke my sacred seal, you guys. I'm telling you this partly, this is a little self-serving because we were a community here and if I don't remember your name and I'm shit, I'm sorry. So this is part of a PS PSA. Just, just remember if that happens here um, that I did not remember the name of the man who broke my hymen, okay? Just take that into your heart. <laughs> That's my story. <laughs> Thank you. We are gonna get right into the juicy, juicy. Um, I am very excited to bring up your next featured, or your first featured storyteller of the evening. Um, the brilliant, the beautiful, a name that you won't soon forget, Marina Wool. Good evening. So, I don't have nightmares often, but I always have the same ones, right? The first one started when I was about 10. There are zombies. 
I am defending like a house or a building, very sort of like a walking dead style. The second one started when I was a teenager and I am trapped in a sort of like tri-wizarding cup type hedge maze and I, but there is like a scoreboard clock that I can always see above me counting down that never gets to zero. The last of my uh, nightmares is, started about three years ago, I will wake up in a cold sweat, gasping for air, haunted by the time that I overdressed to a wedding. The wedding in question was my college friend, Allison. Um, yes, we were friends and ran in the same groups, but she had a very different experience than I did. She came from a very prominent family, got into an exclusive sorority as a legacy, and was just kind of more comfortable around what I call stupid money. <laughs> So I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is a private school in Philadelphia, and there was a lot of that there. Um, and you know, I'm, we're talking about rich people that it just totally changes your perspective of the universe, right? Like these guys are walking around on a different plane. And it's not just like the fun stuff, right? Like the jets and the cars and the penthouses. It is, you see them and they walk through the universe with a sense of certainty that is in their bones. Like they know that the world could and probably is ending and they would be fine probably in a bunker somewhere. And I don't know about you, but I find that sense of like surety of your place in the world deeply intoxicating. <laughs> because I did not have that, right? I grew up in Colorado with what I think is a very sort of like middle of the road, middle of the country type of upbringing, except for both of my parents are native to New York City and moved out uh, before I was born. And I think they always had it in their head that they were gonna move back, but it just kind of became one of those things that didn't happen. And so our household had this very like eastward orientation, right? Like my mom never lost her accent. She sounds like Fran Drescher. Uh, <laughs> We had a framed map of the New York City subway in our living room. <laughs> and like back east was almost held with this sort of like religious reverence, right? It's like not just where you went to go and be successful. It was the only place where your success counted. Everywhere else was just trying to be that. So somewhere around middle school, myself as a very high achieving, validation seeking young woman, got it in my head that I was gonna go to a fancy pants East Coast school if it killed me. So I showed up on Penn's campus, 
with zero clue of what to expect. I met Allison and the rest of our friends. And you know, it's interesting, just like any other sort of social group, they have this language that is very nuanced of these tells and signals where they suss out whether or not you're supposed to be there. And for women, most of that revolves around just these beautiful, luxurious clothes, right? Like in the handbags and the shoes and all of the labels are in French and Italian. And the best I could do was make sure I knew how to pronounce them correctly. So we would go out most nights to clubs and get bottle service and I would wear my knockoff dresses and pretend that I understood everybody's accents until dawn. And we would make up for it during finals, pulling all-nighters with Adderall prescriptions that were not ours <laughs> and smoking every hour until I would roll into my 9 a.m final smelling like a campfire, right? It was very like Lindsay Lohan meets Ivy League. <laughs> and as you can imagine, that kind of lifestyle is not great when you don't have the luxury of a trust fund. And I ended up mostly just spending way too much time drinking and nursing a pretty solid eating disorder. So. By the time that I needed to graduate, during the Great Recession, I tried to find myself a job and that worked out about as well as you think it would. I boomeranged back home, feeling that I had lost my like one shot at upward mobility, right? So 10 years later, my husband and I get this very elegant and tasteful invitation to Allison's wedding. And I was honestly a little surprised, right? Like I did not do a great job of keeping in touch with a lot of my classmates. I was doing that thing where I was ashamed that I was not quote unquote successful. So I was hiding until I had some point in the future where I was making up the ground that I lost. And when I got the invite, I decided this was my chance at redemption, right? Like I cultivated this fantasy that if I showed up looking enough like the part that they would welcome me back into the upper echelons and the life that I missed out on would finally begin, which I am aware is insane. <laughs> so Allison's wedding rolls around and you know, I had rented, because there was no way I was gonna buy, several new outfits that were being very well-reviewed by the other attendees. I thought I was gonna pull this thing off, right? Until what is the opening scene of my nightmare. I am walking across just a perfectly manicured lawn, and I approach the like Southern Belle family friend person who became my wedding friend at the rehearsal dinner the night before. And the look on her face will be forever burned into my subconscious. I knew I had immediately fucked up, <laughs> right? Because the thing about weddings is 
it is this very sort of like regimented vestige of a lot of the protocol and etiquette that you would only see in like period pieces, right? Like there's everything is goes in a certain order. Everything is very intentional because you're supposed to have thought about this day your entire life. And for that reason, every everything means something. And I knew this. My mom was old school. She drilled this shit into me. So when I got the Southern Bells look, I realized that in my craziness, even though the event said black tie, when your ceremony is at two o'clock in the afternoon, yeah, you do not go all out, right? And there is this phrase that says, money talks, but wealth whispers. And my gold embroidered floor length gown should have been kicking and screaming on the floor like I wanted to in that moment. I had overheard the bride's high school friends in the row behind me talking about how they would have worn pajamas in reference to my outfit. I totally fixated on my faux pas. I felt like I couldn't redeem myself. I could feel myself sinking into inferiority and wanted to run until the cutting of the cake, which by the way, is the time that you're allowed to leave. <laughs> and then I boomerang back home, feeling totally defeated again. It was a few months after that that the pandemic started. It was a few months after that that my then husband asked me for a divorce. And I don't think those things are unrelated, right? Like it was the same sort of insecurity that led me to wear a dress that I shouldn't have been wearing, as stay in a marriage that I shouldn't have been in, as go to a school that I probably shouldn't have gone to. And I don't know. I moved out to Boise after my marriage ended to move in with my best friend. And we'll see what happens, right? Like, I'm happy to report that this summer I bought my first pair of Tevas. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, I've realized that this thing has become my weird little coping mechanism for reconciling what is like a constellation of insecurities and geographic elitism, apparently. <laughs> so maybe, you know, telling my, you know, I think, let me back up. And now I live in Boise and I'm overdressed everywhere I go, right? <laughs> right? And so, but it has become this coping mechanism that I have developed. And so I'm buying my Tevas and I'm wearing my hoodies to dinner every once in a while. And one day, maybe, I will have come to terms with where my life ended up versus where I envisaged. Maybe one day I will 
figure out what I'm doing and not care what I'm wearing while I'm doing it. Thank you. Thank you, Marina. Because of your story, I now know two things I didn't know before. One was that you could leave a wedding when they cut the cake, which I didn't know. And the other one is how the word envisioned, envisioned, what'd you say? Was it in just envisioned? Oh, I thought that was a, no, but it was a different word. It's a, okay. well, we all learned a new word, envisioned. Okay, thank yeah. Round of applause for new words tonight. This is a storytelling mic. Creating culture. Welcome to Idaho, where geographical elitism is so not a thing. <laughs> no worries about that. It's time to bring up our first slammer of the evening. Yeah, first slammer of the evening. Can I have the basket? Remember you have, if your name is called, you have five minutes. Five minutes on the story slam. At four minutes and 30 seconds, you will see a red light. At five minutes, I will walk over from the bench and kick you off the stage. <laughs> I think that's it, right? All right, here we go. Thanks, wow, that was really powerful. You guys really felt swept up in that. All right, please join me in welcoming our first slammer of the evening, Fran Scott. one story leads to another. So I will admit, I do know who broke my sacred seal. It was my husband of 26 years. And I will not tell you whether it was on the night of our wedding or before. That is an insignificant fact. But I will tell you a little story about my sister and I. I was I love books, so I have bookshelves, and I have a lot of books on my bookshelves, and I hide things in my books. And I came across a list of men <laughs> that I had dated after my divorce. And I'm guessing that many of you, after a divorce, have a little bit of a wild time, correct? <laughs> so my sister and I decide we are going to write a list of every single man that we have had sex with. And so thus begins the discussion of, well, what exactly is sex? Is it kissing? Is it making out? Do you have your clothes on? Do you have your clothes off? Is it penetration? Is it just feeling someone up? What might that be? I won't tell you the number <laughs> on my list, but I will tell you that there were names on that list, or rather descriptions of men on that list whose names I did not remember. <laughs> so for example, the guy that I met at Flying M in the line while getting my mocha. Don't remember his name. <laughs> 
So I think about my books, and I think about all of those little hidden secrets in my books, and I think about the journals that I have on my bookshelf as well. And I have journals dating back to 1983. And I want to back up a little bit. I want to tell you a little funny story about um, how many of you have been to like a haunted woods here in the valley, right? Would you, would you ever go to one during the day? Do you think it would be as scary? But we would go every year, my three teenagers and I and their dad, and we would have a ball. We would get chased by people in masks with chainsaws. We would come across bloodied corpse in a building. But I think the thing that haunted my pocketbook the most was one year, my teenaged youngest daughter was walking across a bridge right in front of me, and she got so scared that she screamed out the third retainer that we had just bought for her. <laughs> that has haunted my pocketbook for a long time. <laughs> but I think about things that have haunted me. And I think about those journals on my bookshelf. And I think about the number of stories in those journals dating back to when I was a teenager that I didn't share with anybody for a long time. And I'm guessing that everybody in the room has had some kind of trauma. I don't think you'd be human if you didn't have any trauma. But what I've discovered is that when we keep that trauma in the darkness, it becomes incredibly scary. And I think we lose the fear and we lose the haunting when we come to events like this, when we share our stories with our friends, when we brave telling our stories to strangers. And I was going to tell you what my trauma was, what my deep, dark secrets were in the journal, but I think it doesn't really matter. I think what matters is that we learn to be comfortable telling our stories to our friends and our family, and maybe even ourselves. You know, I think I hid those stories from myself for so long. And I've been reading through my journals, and let me tell you, <laughs> my journals go back to being 12 years old. <laughs> so I realized that a lot of the things that haunted me when I was 12 years old still haunt me when I am much older than 12. But I think about hauntings and I think about stories and I feel the light come into my life, and I feel like I don't have to hide under the covers and have every inch of my skin covered when I share my stories. And I hope that by sharing stories, it encourages others to share their stories and to not be so haunted by those things left in the darkness. Thank you. Thank you, Fran. I agree with everything Fran said, and we also might have paid her to come up and say all of that stuff, so. Bring your trauma, we got it. We're here for you.
You guys know I love that shit. We can cuss tonight, too. Yeah, cuss and talk about virgins. Okay. I love that you guys um, are seated here. It's so campy, but also I think there's a couple seats open here, isn't there? We have a couple seats right here. If you guys want to fill in, please, please feel welcome. Yeah, come on, come on, get off this hard cement floor. They're young. I feel like there's a lot of people in here that are like, I would never, I would never be able to get back up from that. All right, uh, we're gonna do one more slammer before our next featured storyteller. Can I have the slammer basket? Remember, if you do tell a story to come um, tonight, to come up uh, or to go visit our Slammer booth after you tell your story and sign a release, please. So Fran, if you could go do that. And if you can join me in welcoming your next story Slammer, Chris F. I have to stay still. This is a challenge tonight. Don't expect this to be inspirational. <laughs> We're not in for that, no. My dog is a 12-pound Italian greyhound and uh, very small, fragile creatures, and his penis was bleeding. It was bleeding, I know. It's like the most heartbreaking thing I can imagine. This, this haunts me to this day. Um, we took him to the doctor, and the doctor is like, he has a prolapsed urethra. Um, we're gonna have to do a reduction surgery. I'm like, first, before anything, I'm gonna need you to get in writing that my son needs a penis reduction surgery. <laughs> Proud of him. <laughs> He's tiny, but it just like popped out of itself. It just like <laughs> So we had the house wrapped up. You know, you don't wanna ruin your furniture. I love him, but it's not worth the couch. <laughs> Got that at Costco, but still, that was like 800 bucks. <laughs> And uh, we have the house wrapped up. It's a rough week. We finally get him in for his surgery. He uh, has to have a catheter in. And uh, they don't put a bag on there for a dog. Like a human, it's real convenient, you know? You don't pee on yourself. But if you're a dog, they're just like, oh, just let them pee on their house, who cares? They must have their house wrapped up like a freak already, so who cares? <laughs> and we did. It was weird, it was awkward. Walking on plastic for weeks. And uh, I'm in my house one day, enjoying myself, doing the things I do in my house privately when I'm alone uh, with my dog. And my dog, um, he like looks out the window and I see my property manager and two cops walking towards my apartment. And they point up the second floor window and they, <laughs> like my first thought is like, what the fuck did the tweaker neighbors do this time? And they point at my house. I'm like, I'm the tweaker neighbor. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and, uh, they come up to the door and I pick up the dog as if he's evidence, I've done nothing wrong. I'm like, look at him. <laughs> it's pathetic, he's hanging on by a thread. <laughs> it's like a tooth that's loose that just won't fall out. <laughs> and uh, they come to the door and they say, so uh, we don't wanna mess with your day. Uh, we just found a shell casing over by the office and there's a trail of blood leading up to your front door here. <laughs> and you know, my, my rule has always been don't answer the door for cops. Maybe that's just a leftover from my house smelling illegal from some weird leftover thing. But uh, don't answer the door for cops. But I changed it that day. Don't answer the door for cops unless your house is wrapped up like Dexter's and there's a trail of blood leading to your door. <laughs> oh, I've never been so scared. I was like, I'm going to jail right, right this instant. There's, there's, this house smells illegal. I don't know if you understand. 
It's a serious business. And uh, a man's been shot, but this guy needs to go to jail. And uh, the cop's like, all right, sorry, uh, we don't want to interrupt you. You guys have a good day. And uh, they left, you know. And what would have been a death sentence for one turned out to be a joke for me. Sorry if that seems insensitive. No big moral of this story here, just I love my dog <laughs> so much. And he's on his last limb, dude. He's gonna die like any month now. And I'm like, it's so funny that this little loose tooth is uh, gonna break my soul. <laughs> like, I'm gonna cry more when my dog dies than when my blank family member, because I'm recording this. <laughs> I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Sorry, Grandma. Um, <laughs> life's hard. I love you guys. I've been Chris Foster. Have a good night. Sorry, Grandma. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I am pleased to bring up your next featured storyteller. Uh, he's worked hard on this story. I'm very excited to have him here. Please join me in welcoming the beautiful, the intelligent, Ben Hess. Don't touch the mic. That's what she was telling me. <laughs> In case you were wondering, like, what kind of behind the scenes, how do you make the sausage stuff, what's going on? Um, I'm Ben Hess, and um, I am haunted by a lifetime of memories that occurred over a month. Uh, in April of 2004, I was in the Marines, and I was a fire team leader in an infantry unit deployed in Iraq. And at one point, we were tasked with uh, basically attacking and taking the city of Al Fallujah, which is a city that just was a hotbed of insurgency. And I remember arriving to the city at dawn, and we had already been deployed to Iraq for maybe a month at that point, and the sun hadn't come up yet. And the thing about Iraq is that it's flat, so a city just starts and then stops. So I could see the edge of the city from the outside of it. It looked like a painting on an all old like Hollywood backdrop on a studio. And you know, the Army and the Air Force had already begun bombing it and all that stuff, and it just, it was on fire. And I could see it in front of me, and I knew I was about to go in there. And I could feel these really uncomfortable feelings running through me, running through my body. I could feel my heart pound in my ears, and I could feel my chest get tight. And what bugged me about it at that moment, even in that moment, knowing I was about to go in that city, was why that feeling I was feeling was so familiar. And it bugged me. But then we went, we went into the city, and I didn't have a lot of time to really think about that. 
And then eventually, about two weeks in, we had worked our way to a sort of a road where we sort of got stopped from moving in. And there was a lot of, a lot of fighting. And I have a lot of memories from that period of time that are all mixed up and a lot of chaotic. And a lot of them, I, I call them uh, looking through uh, root, or emerald colored glasses because of all those memories that are in night vision goggles. And they're all really, uh, they're like two-dimensional, there's no depth, so it feels like even more inhuman. And I, all those memories, when I think about chasing guys down through these green-colored memories, that feeling is there. That feeling is laced in every one of those memories, and I don't, I didn't understand why for a really long time. And I remember at one point when we had gotten stopped from pushing through the city, uh, you know, we had taken a lot of casualties. And you had to ensure that the enemy didn't come in behind the line to retake the ground that you had already taken. So you'd have to do foot security patrols, squad patrols, like 12 guys, and go on these nice little strolls <laughs> through Fallujah. And they had gotten through every time. And so on those patrols, we would draw straws to see who would go because it wasn't a matter of when, or it wasn't a matter of if you'd get in a gunfight, it was a matter of when. So every time I went on that patrol, you know, it was just two hours of waiting, just waiting for someone to shoot at me. And I still had that feeling. And I remember walking in the streets of Fallujah I'm 21 years old, and I, you know, I was just falling asleep in physics class like three years before that, and I've got a weapon strapped, and I remember like the, thinking in the words, not even abstractly about the idea, why the fuck is this so familiar? Why do I know what this feels like? I'd never been in a gunfight before. And it's been almost 20 years since Fallujah, and since then, I developed an enormous drinking habit. I fathered two daughters before I had the wisdom or the stability to do that right. I've straight walked out of jobs because I didn't like the way someone was talking to me. And I've burnt more bridges than I could even dream to build. I get suicidal thoughts and I have a lot of nightmares. And I deal with all that and I think about all that all the time. And a lot of that had to do with me sort of thinking of myself as a statistic. Like I'm an alcoholic combat veteran that has trouble sleeping and has bad nightmares. You could almost, I'm almost a cardboard cutout for the VA suicide helpline, you know? And so I relegated to myself that that's just how it is. But I was so plagued by that question about why these feelings felt so familiar because I thought for years that Iraq really fucked me up. But I needed to know the answer to those questions. Why are these ghosts so fucking familiar? Why do I recognize them? And I do have a lot of nightmares, and I have night terrors, and I remember my very first night terror. 
I remember the first nightmare, night terror I ever had. I was four years old and I was sleeping in my bed and I was looking up at the ceiling and the Wicked Witch of the West poured out of the ceiling and she, she was grabbing at me with her long slender fingers and laughing. And it was, I was wide awake and it was real as night as day to my little four-year-old brain. And I remember tearing out of the bedroom. And it was, that was the first night terror I remember and I've had plenty since. And it occurred to me, I've had weird nightmares and night terrors my whole life, way before combat. I, it had been a part of my life way before that. And I had no idea. And there was another memory that I remembered of another dream that I started looking at and taking it apart from different angles. And I remember this dream from when I was a teenager. And I dreamt that I got in a fight with my parents, probably over grades or something. And I remember screaming at them, and they're screaming back, and I'm in tears, because that's always how they went. And then I remember you know, being like, you know, fuck you, parental units, or whatever we said in the 90s, and I went. And I ran into the bathroom and I shut myself in the bathroom and this is all within the dream and I was like so angry and so upset and for whatever reason I was like, you know what, fuck this bathroom and fuck this mirror, you know, that just happened to be right there. And I pissed all over the mirror in my dream. I peed all over it, just like this mirror is stupid. And then I woke up and I had peed the bed, which was really awkward. And when I was trying to dig for the answer to those questions, and I was digging and digging and digging and digging into memories and digging into dreams. It occurred to me suddenly, like a weight of bricks, that if, like, if you're dealing with a mirror in a dream, I mean, this is obvious to me now, but if you're thinking about a mirror in a dream, it's never just a fucking mirror. Because I was peeing all over myself. Because I hated myself. Why do I hate myself? Where did the fuck does that come from? Then I remember that night terror from when I was four years old and the Wicked Witch of the West came pouring out of the ceiling. Because there's a second half to it that I remembered that I just completely blocked out. And the second half was running down the hallway, pounding on my parents' door, watching the door swing open, getting screamed at, lifted up by one hand and beat with the other, dropped down in the hallway and the door slammed on me. And in my four-year-old brain, that Wicked Witch of the West is still down the hallway in the darkness. And there's no one to protect me. And that's when I realized that I grew up abused. And those were the ghosts that felt so familiar. Those were the ghosts I recognized when I, in Iraq, that I could feel the same thing in a combat area of operations that I did as a child in my own home. And when I realized that, I realized that I had power over it. I wrestled in high school. And I lost almost every single match for all four years. And it was devastating. I lost every single fucking match. I mean, look at me. I'm built like a basketball player. Come on, what was I doing? <laughs> but I ended up realizing something about myself through wrestling. Because no matter, I lost every single match by points. I never got pinned all four years, outmatched, outclassed, thrown around the mat, owned by fucking all these country boys. <laughs> you know the guys, they're stocky. They just toss you around, low center of gravity. <laughs> but 
but I never got pinned. And I realized, fuck it, let's do it. Let's get into this thing. And then I realized that I could see the same terror in my children's eyes when I would spank them and yell at them that I experienced when I was a kid. And then I realized that I get really mad at them when I'm hungover or when I'm drunk. And then I realized that, and it just started, I just started fixing shit. I stopped drinking, I stopped yelling at my children, I stopped hitting my children. And I started to take steps towards loving myself instead of peeing all over that kid in the mirror. Oh, wow. So I'm at a point now where I'm realizing that this story isn't over. This is like just the beginning of it. And I'm starting to see all these opportunities open up. And I don't know where it's going to go, to be honest with you. And I'm excited about that. But you'll know how I wanted to end if you come across my grave someday. And where the headstone is, there is just a giant exclamation point. And then it's freeze-framed like the end of that movie we all love. All right. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben Hess. Yeah. Now you guys know what Fran was talking about, huh? Thank you for that. Thank you for that, Ben. Um, that was beautiful. And that was a great example of um, if you want to put your name in the hat and you want to tell a funny story, that's great. If you want to tell a deep and meaningful story and you want to get it out there, we welcome that as well. Um, we're going to take a short intermission, about 10 or 15 minutes, and we're going to hear some more from our band, uh, Candy Shake. Yeah, who's been just sitting up here awkwardly. Like, what a strange gig, right? <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. And then <laughs> we, sat, we sat on our equipment and listened to stories. So thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, I do just want to point out the art on the walls tonight. This is Searle Mitchell's art. Uh, Searle Mitchell passed away 11 years ago, almost exactly today in October of 2011. Um, she's the reason that we have the Searle's place where we do artist in residency. We have an artist there now from Taiwan. So please, during intermission, feel free to wander around and appreciate that art. And um, we will see you back here in a few minutes. Thank you. We are winding down from intermission, and I'll just take this opportunity to, again, thank you to our story subscribers. If you would like to be a story subscriber, you would become our monthly sustaining uh, member. Um, and if you reoccur and do that monthly, you'll get two tickets to every show. In November and December, that would be two shows, so it's a really good deal. I think it's 25 or $30 a month. You can do that. Nobody's listening to me, but I'm gonna just keep going. You could. People were way nicer at the farmer's market, you guys. I know. Um, you can do that by texting story sub one, two, three. I don't know. Nobody's. What is it? Story sub. God. Four, four, three, two, one. You can do that. $25 a month, two tickets to every show. You have to be a recurring member. If you just signed up once, you will not get the tickets to the next show. We would love it if you would do that. That would help us to keep doing these shows. Uh, it, it costs us to do this, so 
you know, yeah, please, please consider. Um, your band has one more featured song tonight that they prepared. Yeah, just for tonight. Kyle, Andy, Shay, and Jake, Candy Shake. Thank you. you guys thank you so much you guys that was awesome thank you, yeah. thank you. all right I do want to just point out before we move on to our next uh, to our next slammer and the next half of our show this lovely tree that you might have seen here um, this is if you've been to our stage before you know we don't normally have a set we can't claim this uh, although it would be lovely if we did um, have this Jody and I were reflecting. I told a story on this stage for late night in like 2020, and it was there was just me on the stage and like like my boyfriend, my best friend, and Jody in the audience, and that was it. And we live streamed it, and this just feels like the fullness. Like we've got this full band here tonight. We've got a full house. We've got this full beautiful cherry blossom tree, um, and it's actually a part of a set for a production that's going on right now through Alley Repertoire Theater. And that play is called Hot Asian Doctor Husband. Um, yep, they are in the second week, second and final week of the run this week. Um, and it's only debuted in, this is only the third uh, city in the country world that it has de debuted in. So we're very lucky to have 
that here. It's going to be cabaret uh, just, like, just like this is. So um, come check it out if you're in the mood. I'm going to be here on Friday, so maybe I'll see you. Um, okay, uh, can I have my slammer basket? We are going to pull another slam. Remember, you have five minutes. You'll see a light at 4.30. When you're done with your story, please go to the story booth and sign our release form. I am not cheating, although I did get a guy almost bribed me to get me to pull his name, but I did not accept. He offered me thousands of dollars. Um, oh man, something six force. Nick's, Nick six force? Is this a prank? <laughs> oh, Nicole, okay. <laughs> Okay, so I'm not prepared. I have not prepared for this. That's a scary thing. <laughs> so, um, okay, another scary thing. Um, I see ghosts. So, my husband and I, oh, another scary thing. <laughs> Once upon a time, a young couple could afford to buy a new house in Boise. <laughs> Okay, so we're walking through this new, bigger family-sized home because we have a kid, finally, after all those years of college. And, um, and I'm pretty sure that I can see ghosts, and this is the first time that I actually, well, maybe the second time I actually saw a ghost in a house I was considering moving into. Um, it was the owner's, um, his mother. So the, the current owner, I knew a little bit of their situation, and it was his mother's perfume on the bottom stairwell. So we walked through this house, and um, the basement, all basements are creepy, but the basement was creepy. It was kind of dim, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And I got to the stairwell, and I realized I could smell her perfume. And um, so I just, and then I realized that this house was a house I'd been driving by in Boise for years. And like every time I went by the window, I always thought there was someone in the attic staring out at me. And I was like, I will never live in that house. <laughs> this is my house now. <laughs> so anyways, um, yeah, they, they remodeled it and it looked beautiful. So I didn't recognize that it was the same creepy, green, mossy looking house. And um, so I smelled her perfume in the stairwell, and because I do feel like I see ghosts sometimes, I asked her, like, is this okay, like, if we live here? And I felt like the answer was, yeah. Like, okay, yeah, this is good. So, so we bought the place, and we moved in. So the first summer, we get ready to go on this big week-long vacation, and, um, you know, and take our kid and everything, and I'm vacuuming the floor, and I find this postcard underneath of the couch, and I pull it out, and it's a postcard from the previous owner's mother <laughs> to their house sitter. And I swear to you, this house was clean when we moved in, and I found this postcard like that like dropped off the wall, or God only knows where. And I pull it out, and it says, "Be sure to lock up, you know, to the to the housekeeper or whoever was going to watch the house while they were on vacation." Um, and to make sure that you lock the upstairs window, like period. 
And do you think I locked the upstairs window before I left? <laughs> you bet I did. Because <laughs> I didn't want her haunting my ass. <laughs> so, yeah, and so I felt, anyways, um, I don't know if I saw or felt her again, but there was another incident in our house, which is that um, because of us having talked to the previous owner, I knew that his dad was, was Larry, and sometimes people called him Scary Larry. I don't know why. <laughs> and um, after we moved in, my son got older, he would build these little like toy walls around both entrances to his room, um, because it's a really super old house. And so you come in, and to go upstairs, you actually have to go through the corner of my son's room and up this like really super steep staircase, um, like a ship's ladder staircase. And so he would build these little like toy walls at the entrances and he told us it was so that there was this person wouldn't come in who was named Scary. So, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, the lights would sometimes turn on in the basement and when we inhabited the basement, the lights would turn on in the attic instead. And then one day, my husband and I got ready to move up into the attic room, which has incredible light according to the real estate agent. <laughs> so like I'm like I'm scrubbing the tub up there and getting ready and I felt like there was someone like directly behind me and I was like god it's only like 3 or 4 p.m. I don't think it's my husband and I felt like it was scary Larry and like scowling at me and I was just like uh, we live here now <laughs> and let me assure you we're taking good care of this house see how I'm scrubbing the tub <laughs> And you can live in the basement now, um, and there will always be a room somewhere for you here in this house. Just try not to leave the lights on anymore <laughs> because of the power bill. So, <laughs> and so I felt, I felt like it was a yes, like, okay, you know, all right, I can accept that. And um, anyways, the last incident in this house was just a few years ago. And I had bought this bright red vacuum cleaner. And um, one night I left it at the top of this, that really super tall staircase. And I looked out my bedroom window and um, I thought I saw someone like standing right next to the vacuum cleaner. And I was like, oh my God, the vacuum cleaner is possessed. <laughs> so I got rid of the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and then I realized it was Scary Larry. <laughs> And he was like staring at me saying like, who the fuck left this vacuum cleaner at the top of this scary ass set of stairs? <laughs> Put that shit away. <laughs> so it's all good now. <laughs> I bought a vacuum at a, at a garage sale once and I'm starting to wonder like, <laughs> Some vacuums come with a story. I wonder what happened to that one. <laughs> Nicole, did you sell it at a yard sale? Was it a bagged Hoover? I love the bagged ones. I know it's old fashioned, but anyways, now we're talking about vacuums, getting off the subject here. Um, uh, let's see, any more announcements? No, no more announcements. Are you guys ready for your third and final featured storyteller of the evening? Awesome. This is her first time to our Story Story stage, but she is a regular at The Spill in Nampa. 
um, and she is a writer. Please join me in welcoming the beautiful and brilliant Alice Nelson. <laughs> I'm a diva, I needed the mic at my height. Hello everybody. So, I'm just gonna start my story. It was the first day of seventh grade and we had to meet at a bus stop on the corner of Hilltop and 47th at 6.30 in the morning to catch a yellow bus that was gonna take us to John J. Pershing Junior High. Now, I was 11 years old, out of elementary school, going into junior high. That was scary enough, but we were gonna to go to junior high in a school clear across town. So there was about five of us at this bus stop. We were familiar with each other from the neighborhood, but we weren't friends. All of my friends were gonna to go to Samuel Gompers, which was catty corner to where we were standing. So I could see the school that I wanted to go to, that my older brothers and sisters had gone to, and that all my friends were going to, while I stood there in the near darkness waiting for the bus to come. And it was, it was some nervous energy in the air. You know, you could understand these kids are going to this new school. So we, we tried to joke around with each other and play around, but everything felt forced. By the time a bus, the bus arrived, my, my hands were shaking, so I shoved them into my pockets so no one would see. The bus driver was this heavy-set Italian woman named Paulette. Paulette always smelled like cigarettes, and she had the dark lips and yellow teeth of a long-time smoker. She was New Jersey born and proud, and she'd tell anyone whether you asked her or not. So we got on the bus, and, and as soon as we got on the bus, you could hear the radio playing, and she was playing 101.5 KGBFM, which was the rock station in town. And almost immediately, there was a revolt. Two of the girls, whose names I couldn't tell you if you held a gun to my head, decided that they wanted Paulette to play the soul station in town. So they were demanding this and, and kind of yelling at her, which was kind of rude. And Paulette let them get their, you know, let them, you know, get their things out, get their feelings out. And she was gonna tell you right then and there who was in charge of that bus. And it was, wasn't us, it was her. So she looked in the rearview mirror at us in the back and she said, sit down. Everybody sat down. I went, got a window seat, and this, the other two girls sat on the aisle across from me, and they were still complaining about Paulette not changing the station. You know, they felt that since there were black kids on board, we should be able to hear what we wanted to hear, but I didn't really care. I was probably the only one on that bus that was happy with KGB being on there, but I could not say a word to any of these girls because then they would call me the O word. And the O word is Oreo. It's kind of a derogatory term that black people have for other black people that they don't feel are black enough. I, was, I would be blackish if I had said I liked KGB. So I sat there and I didn't say anything to them. So we're driving down the street and she's going on the route to pick up the other kids. And a song came on that I heard. I don't remember what it was, but I just started singing, you know, lightly like I did when the songs came on that I liked. And I could feel them staring at me, glaring at me. So I turned to look, and they had this look on their face. And if any of you have any black friends, you know, you've seen this look before. It was like. <laughs> and I, so I said, you know, what's the deal? And they said, why are you listening to that white music? You think you white? And, you know, how do you, how do you answer that question? What do you say to that? I just liked music because it was music. So I probably said something like, I, I just like the song. And I expected that they would call me the O word because I'd been called that before, I was used to it. I just didn't want that name following me from elementary school to junior high. 
So I sat there waiting for it to come, but they just whispered to each other and giggled. And I turned back to the window and looked out as the neighborhood passed by and she picked up the other kids. And soon the small houses of Southeast San Diego where we lived gave way to the bigger, more pristine houses of San Carlos, which was the suburb where Pershing was. The bus was full and there was a chaotic energy on board the bus as well. I think all of us were scared. We just didn't want to admit that we were. So Paulette let us have our anxiety-inducing yells and screams as long as we didn't get out of the bus seat. And we had a right to be scared. We didn't know it yet, but we did. So as we turned the corner to the school, there was a large crowd of people out front. And I just thought it was parents dropping their kids off. It was the first day of school. But as we got closer and she pulled up and parked in front of the school, I knew that, that th these weren't parents dropping off their kids. This was the faces of angry people looking at us, protesting that we were coming to their school. So we sat there, not knowing what to do. The bus was silent, but Paulette, she, she wasn't having any of it. She got up, opened the bus door, and she asked the parents to move out of the way because they were blocking the doors. And so she said, come on, kids, one by one, and created this sort of barrier between us, 30 or so kids on board, and these angry parents yelling at 11 and 12-year-olds to go back to your neighborhoods to go to school. <clears throat> and as we made our way through this angry mob, we saw it for the first time. And by it, I mean the graffiti that greeted us nearly every Monday morning that first year. The school did a half-assed job of covering it up. It just was like one thin coat of white paint over this black spray paint, allowing the words to bleed through in defiance. Niggers, go home. Niggers, go back to Africa. With a swastika at the end, of course, to punctuate their point. This was 1977, and we were the first ever voluntary integration program we were part of the first ever voluntary integration program of the San Diego Unified School District. It was 1977, like I said, 23 years after Brown versus the Board of Education, and San Diego hadn't done a damn thing to integrate their schools. It took a lawsuit and the California State Supreme Court order before they did anything to get any kind of program together to alleviate racial segregation. And all of us kids on those dozens of buses that pulled up to Pershing that day, we were volunteered either by our parents or by teachers to come to this school. It was a 45 minute ride one way to come to a school that didn't want us. And the weird thing was, to me, was the school never said anything about the graffiti. Not that day, not ever. They didn't say to us, oh, this is, we're going to look into this. We're going to see if this is never going to happen again. Or if it does, we'll cover it up to make sure you don't see it. They didn't say, these words don't speak for us. You're very welcomed here. They, they handled it like they handled everything difficult at that school the entire three years I was there with silence. Now, maybe, maybe they didn't know how to handle it. It was a new program. Maybe they, they didn't know what to do. Or, or maybe, just maybe, they hoped that we'd see those words and we'd be so scared that we'd never come back. Which would have been fine by me because I didn't want to go there in the first place. It was my mother and my sixth grade teacher who got together and decided that I was going to go to Pershing. Not to the school that my older sisters and brothers went to, not to the school that my friends went to, but to this school. Because if you believe that separate but equal is, is equal, it's not. The schools in my neighborhood were ill-equipped. And, and it, we didn't have any of the books or any of the money that the schools in in San Carlos had. So I knew my mother was doing it because she thought it was the best thing for me, but I resented her nonetheless. 
I resented having to go to this place, having her and my teacher make that decision right when I'm standing there. They didn't ask me, they didn't talk to me, they didn't find out how I felt about it. I was a fucking ghost. They didn't hear me and they didn't see me. So I, I resented her. But I didn't give her any trouble, I didn't, I didn't refuse to go. My mom was in a miserable marriage to my father, so I didn't want to add any more to her plate. He had taken a hands-off approach to parenting and the bulk of the responsibility of it for seven kids was on her shoulders. So I wasn't gonna be the one to give her more grief, so I decided I would suck it up and I would go. And when I came home from school that first day and she asked me how it was, I said, fine, I'm not gonna tell her about the graffiti. And she never dug any deeper, ever. Fine was all she could hear, fine was all she would hear from me. The school handled that stuff in silence, but they weren't the only ones. I handled things in silence, too. I had a fucking PhD in that, because that's how I grew up. That was our house. We didn't talk about anything serious. I just had to suck it up and deal with it. Hey, you're 11 years old, but life is tough. You might as well learn now, kid. So I told her nothing. I didn't tell her about the math teacher who virtually ignored me, then told me I would never get above a D in his class, even though when I raised my hand to ask for help, he never showed me how to do it. He would just do the problem and drop the pencil and walk off. I didn't tell her about going to my counselor about it, and he suggested, oh, you should get a tutor, but he never said anything about the behavior of this teacher. I didn't tell her about the graffiti that had taken such a toll on me. There, there would be nights I would go to bed and pray that I would wake up white, because then all of my problems would be gone. I didn't tell her about the girl who I thought was my friend who out of the blue one day said, hey, Alice, your teeth are so white, but you know, they're only that white because your skin's so dark. I kept that all in. I didn't say anything, not to my mom, not to any of the friends I went to school with. We all kept it in. We all kept it silent, like we had to. <clears throat> that 11-year-old girl, she held all of that inside because in her experiences, no one wanted to know anyway. It, it was a strange position to be in because it felt like we were all alone. And then I started to think, well, maybe it's just me. Maybe nobody else feels this way. Maybe I'm exaggerating and being overly sensitive. And then one day, not long ago, I was doing some research for a book that I'm writing. <clears throat> and I came across this article from a, an old newspaper in San Diego called The Reader. It's from 2012, and it was written by a woman who had gone to school at Pershing the same time that I did. And right there, I read the article over and over because on that page was my experience, just written by somebody else. And up to that point, I had never talked about it with anyone. If I got together with kids that I went to school with, we would just talk about the fun times that we had sandwiched between all the bad. But there it was, all the things that happened to me, very similar experiences. She talked about the graffiti we would see and the anger that welled up inside of her because niggers go home was always in the air. She talked about wanting to fit in, but being teased by her white classmates because she wore her hair in a natural. Even her family life was similar to mine, and I, I could not believe I was reading this. I felt, in a weird way, I felt vindicated, because up to that point, I had just thought it was me. I, I downplayed what had happened to me, and now I felt like not only could I, but I should talk about it. And also that there were probably dozens of other kids who felt the same way. So nowadays when I go back to San Diego and I, I see these kids get off these yellow buses smiling in ways that I never could, I think to myself, hey, 
maybe our group being the first of its kind, maybe, maybe we made it easier for black and brown kids to go to these white schools. And I'm grateful for that, but I wish, I wish it made me feel like what I went through was all worth it. I don't think it was. There's a, there's a part of me that, there's a part of me that thinks that what I went through made me stronger, made me better. But what it did was just haunt me forever. I was always that little girl, and still am that little girl who just wants to be heard. And I've only told this story a handful of times to people, and when I do tell it, I, I see pity, you know, coming back at me from the faces. And, and, and I get it, I understand it. But you know, I don't, I don't really want people to feel sorry for me. I want people to hear my story, to hear what I have to say, you know, so we can work through this weird racial divide that we have. The, and I want people to listen the way I wish they had listened to 11-year-old me, that little girl who felt like a ghost, a shadow in the background that no one could see and no one could hear. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. That was, a, that was an education, I think, for a lot of people in this room. So thank you for educating us and for telling your story and know that you've been heard. Okay. Um, and I don't think you've made anybody in here feel sorry. Maybe you've made some people feel really <laughs> guilty, as you should. <laughs> but you're the one up here telling your story, so. Um, all right, we are gonna have uh, maybe three more story slammers for the evening to close out our show. I don't think we've received any blue tickets, we, so we haven't received any sheepish slams yet. So um, if that continues to be the case, uh, we will just do three regular slams. And Chaz, my phone has died, so if you wouldn't mind timing, that would be amazing. Can I give you my phone to take back to Chaz? Would that be okay to plug in? Okay, man, thank credits, thank you so much. I appreciate it, it's right here. Eric. Eric Jankowski. <laughs> Jankowski. Jankowski. Eric. Jankowski. I'm 23 years old and I have 80 pounds of oranges because I've convinced the University of Michigan solar car team that I can feed their team on their weekend team building retreat. And oranges are on sale. And I'm as frugal as I want to have new friends. I've stayed at Michigan for graduate school, and all of my housemates got jobs and left. So I'm all alone, 
and I'm trying to meet some new people. My plan is to do this with cheap oranges, logistics, and the application of thermodynamics, which I know will impress engineers. A single orange is a tasty treat for one person, but 80 pounds of ripe oranges with 40 drunk engineers is a tactical error. We are not going to get the security deposit back on this rental. It's like 80 pounds of delicious pre-filled water balloons. And in the middle of this fight, Chuck Dew runs up to me and he says, grab an orange and follow me. So I grab an orange and I follow Chuck Dew down the stairs and his bathrobe kind of like sweeps up behind him like a cape. And when he stops, it like swings around and reveals the pale, gaunt body of a man who's been modeling laminar flow across a car for the past two years. And he says, when I open this door, you throw. <laughs> so I wind up and Chuck throws the door open. And right as the orange is leaving my fingertips, the scene on the other side of the doorway comes into focus. And it comes into focus right when the orange is hitting Greg's ass. It's one of these like slow motion, like wobbles that will stick with you forever. Greg went to the Navy after he graduated, and he's an alum of the Michigan Solar Car team. He hasn't been on land in a long time, and he hasn't seen his girlfriend in a long time. And on the left of Greg's butt cheek is one of her legs, and on the right of his butt cheek is the other one of her legs. And I use my legs to run back upstairs. I go back to stirring the jambalaya that I'm cooking for everybody. <laughs> and like three minutes later, I figure I'm in the clear. Nobody's come upstairs. But then Greg comes. And then Greg comes upstairs. The party of 40 drunk engineers gets quiet when Greg comes upstairs. He just says one word. He just says, who? And my hopes of having new friends were shattered when everybody points at me.
And Greg lifts me up by my throat <laughs> and carries me out through the patio and starts drowning me in the hot tub. <laughs> he is very strong. And I'm underwater in the hot tub, having my trachea collapsed. And I think how stupid I am for dying in a hot tub just because oranges were cheap. <laughs> and I think how stupid Greg is because he's already choking me. The water is redundant. <laughs> and a moment later, he releases my throat and I spring out of the hot tub. And on my way out of the hot tub, I see the five or six guys that are hitting Greg with stuff, which has confused him momentarily. And I run into a room and I lock the door and I climb into a sleeping bag and I soak the sleeping bag. And as soon as the adrenaline wears off, I fall asleep. I don't recommend falling asleep first at a college party. <laughs> and when I wake up the next morning, I'm the first one up. It's a war zone. There's oranges and bodies everywhere. And the only other person awake is Greg. I've got like two sentences, like two sentences. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, you have to come back next time to hear what happens. It just felt like it could have gone on and on and on. It was really funny. Okay, clap if you want to hear the last two sentences. And it better be two sentences. I'm gonna use some commas. <laughs> Nobody heard my scream when Greg enveloped me in a bear hug and said, I'm so sorry for overreacting last night. He fills a bucket of soapy water and together scraping the burnt orange juice off of the fireplace doors, we give each other a second chance. I mean, I liked it better when I didn't know what happened. <laughs> That's just me. Can I get the slammer basket up here? We're gonna do two more slams, two more slams. Yes. Thank you. Any blue tickets yet? No blue tickets, okay. Please welcome to the stage, Randy R.A.S. Hi. <laughs> um, I don't know how to follow those two, but I'll try. I'll start with um, a little history, uh, my history 
Um, my regrets, my haunting stuff, is um, things that could have been, but turned out not to be. And on the one hand, that's good. But there are still those moments. So I started hitchhiking. I was 13 years old. And I went, uh, summer times, I traveled about 20 miles a day to a, um, a golf course where I caddied. So there are some stories to tell about that, too, but that's really not, there were no real haunting issues from that. Um, I was grateful for it. This was in the 1960s. Um, and it was, a lot, it was a lot simpler than I think. Um, I lived in Chicago in the western suburbs, and it was pretty simple. Um, but the one time that I really am haunted by is, it was 1971. Um, I was in my last year of high school. And I was on my way to um, a basketball game, walking down the main street in the town I lived in. It's called Wolf Road. Um, and I was just walking, which was not unusual. Um, and a car pulls up alongside me. Window rolls down. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to a basketball game. Um, You gonna have any fun out there? I said, yeah, probably. I'm in the band. I've got, you know, I've got most of my friends are gonna be there. Everything's good. Um, so, well, the reason I stopped is, do you want to go to a party? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Um, the game will be fun enough for me. I'm not that much of a party goer anyway. I'm kind of a wallflower to begin with. So, nah, thanks though. And so I, a few more steps and he rolls up. It's gonna be cool. There's gonna be entertainment and everything. And I know there's gonna be a band playing. I'm like, nah, that's okay. There's a band up there and I'm playing in that one. And he, he just kind of, persists as I'm walking down the street. He said, there's going to be a clown there. Does anyone get creeped out by Dahmer on TV? Well, um, I was a little bit before that. In having the re retrospective of time, um, this was John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. And he had just been released on parole to, um, and he was allowed to come to Chicago with no restrictions, as, as I understand it now. And so here he is trying to get me into the car. So, you know, 
it kind of does weigh on you. Uh, oh. I'm glad I don't like clowns. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. I'm glad you don't like clowns either, Randy. I don't know where that story was gonna, was gonna go. I'm so glad that you didn't get into that car and so glad you got up on our stage. And thank you for signing our release form. Can I get the basket back? We're gonna do one more story slam. Yeah. <laughs> Mars. Yeah, my whole life is a really scary story. But that's really long, so I'll save you most of it. Um, I grew up Mexican. I don't look like it, but I did. And it's not, it's not great. You don't really fit into a box when you look white. So there's that. And I, I was bullied a lot but most of it was just by my parents. <laughs> That's what it's like being Mexican. <laughs> um, I think the, the most outlandish horror story that I can tell is probably the time that my aunt, as religious and as conservative she is, she did like acid but she didn't tell anyone. It was just an emotional acid that she took. There was like this one single day where I actually studied for a fucking test and it was the SATs. <laughs> of all tests, it was the SATs. I was ready for them. I showed up so confident and my mom pulls me out of school and just decides to like, say, hey, mija, listen. We're worried about you. And um, your family and I have decided to have an intervention because you're just too emo for this world. And I was very surprised because I had actually studied for one single test in my life. And um, my mom picks me up, takes me to my aunt's house. We get there and there's like an EMT, there's two cops and I'm really confused. And my aunt and my grandma come out screaming like, I'm Monte. And I'm like, is someone dying? Like, so then, that's when my, uh, my family decided to tell the cops that my mom was a prostitute and that uh, she was also selling crack on the side. 
I don't know why. Um, I think it was, in fact, the acid. Uh, because I, I don't think that that's very sober of her. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, apparently, earlier that day, I didn't know, but my family had hallucinated my grandfather's spirit in the kitchen. Um, and his spirit let them know that I was gonna commit suicide later that evening, which was unbeknownst to me. Uh, <laughs> so, I went and I had to get a rape kit done because apparently my stepdad was raping me this whole time and I had no idea. <laughs> Who would have known? Not me. But, um, so I, I'm just sitting there taking it. Apparently my mom's a prostitute and a crack whore. And, um, uh, yeah, we, we even get home later that evening and um, apparently um, my aunt had shown up earlier that evening with like an EMT, uh, tried to break into my house using the maintenance guy's like good, good honor. She was like, Senor, please help us. My sister, she is lost and her daughter is going to kill herself. Please let us into her house because she's hanging herself in the bathroom and she like manipulates this poor maintenance man who just gets their asshole ripped open by my mom because she's so fucking pissed that they even let her into her house. Like they broke into her house without her consent. It was a whole thing and my mom is very angry and very Mexican. So she was just not having it at all. And um, yeah, I never got to retake those SATs and um, now it's just a really, really funny horror story for me to tell. <sighs> I could tell you a whole bunch of stories, but that's pretty much the gist of it. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank you, Mars. Still not sure whether your mom was actually a prostitute or not, but I guess... Okay, okay, good. I was gonna say the correct term for your mother's profession is sex worker. I was gonna correct you on that. And at least she got paid, okay? A lot of us don't. Okay. All right, did we ever get a sheepish slam? No sheepish slam? No sleepish slam, all right. Well, that was our, that was our show, you guys. Did you guys enjoy it? Thank you so much for coming out. I'm not checking my text messages. I have some thank yous to read. Um, so sometimes we have you guys play. If you guys want to play a little bit, you can underscore this. Um, so Story Story is late, late Night, or Story Story Late Night is supported by public funding of the arts through the Idaho Commission of the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Remember, you can listen to our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or go to storystorynight.org and click on podcasts. We also have a radio show. It's Story Story Night on Stray Theater. 
which you can hear on Sunday before our flagship show from 5.30 to 6.30. And if you want to see our last show, uh, see our last show, it's up on our YouTube channel. That was Slammer of the Year, Battle of the Bands. All right. Big thank you to our crew, our sound engineer tonight, David Ellers. Thank you to Dave. Thank you to Candy Shake, our band tonight. Thank you to our photographer, Christina. You can find photos from tonight's show on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Thank you to our volunteers and our volunteer coordinator, Natalie DeJosia. To our board of directors, our story subscriber, and big thanks to our producing artistic director and your sheepish reaper, um, Jody Eichelberger. And then one final thank you to the VAC for hosting us tonight and to all the staff. Please join us next time as we groan and gripe about on our next show, Am I Supposed to Be Grateful for This? Tickets are available now on our website. Help us spread the word, grab some postcards, um, and say hello on your way out. Have a good night. Thank you for listening, and I'm glad you survived. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find us. Thanks to host Beth Norton and musical guest Candy Shake. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.